0: At verses 34 through 41, although I'll be taking a bit of a running start into it, uh, starting verse 32. Uh, You can find that on page 922 if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles. A little over 2,000 years ago, just days before the Passover, Jesus came with his disciples to the edge of the city of Jerusalem to a place called the Mount of Olives. And there was a village there called Bethphage. And Jesus sent two of his disciples into that village with instructions to bring a donkey and her colt back to him. Uh, he told his disciples that if anyone said anything, anything to them about it, they were to tell them, The Lord needs them. And the disciples, we're told, found it exactly as Jesus had said. They brought the donkey and they brought the colt to Jesus and they put their cloaks on him. And he sat on them and made his way into the town. Now, Jesus had been to Jerusalem many times before, but this time was different. At this point, the Jewish leadership was united and determined to put Jesus to death. They had tried and tried to discredit him, but they had failed every time. So rather than risk losing their positions of power and influence, they had decided Jesus had to die. And not just die, he had to die in such a way that removed credibility from him as far as they were concerned. They had to, He had to die in a way that showed he was cursed of God. He had to be crucified. And Jesus knew this. But Luke tells us in his gospel that he had set his face to, like flint to go to Jerusalem. He had come to fulfill the will of his father by going to the cross. No man took his life from him, but he freely gave it because he had come to fulfill the word spoken by him of the prophets. Spoken of him by the prophets. And so we see that rather than coming into the city incognito, rather he entered the city in the manner of the kings of old, coming not on a conquering steed, but on a humble donkey, a divinely appointed sign of peace. Now Matthew explains to us that Jesus entered the city in that way to fulfill the word that was spoken of him by the prophet Zechariah, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The people on the road To Jerusalem who were coming in for the Passover noticed what was going on Matthew says that most of the crowd began to spread their cloaks on the road to receive him into the city a veritable red carpet if you will others cut branches from the trees and they spread them on the road And then they began to run before him and behind him, shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It was an astonishing moment. A hope was being realized, and the city of Jerusalem became stirred up together with people who had traveled from all over the world for the feast, asking each other, who is this? To which the people in the crowd answered, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, Jesus' entrance into the city of Jerusalem had a certain point and a certain purpose. Matthew tells us that it was to fulfill the scriptures, intending for us to understand Jesus' full identity, that he is, in fact, the son of David, the rightful king who came in righteousness to secure salvation for his people. So the crowds that ran before Jesus and behind him were right to rejoice at his coming, much to the dismay of the Jewish leaders. God had kept his promise. The son of David was entering the city of peace to make peace between God and man through his cross and through his resurrection. And it's that good news which paul preached in the synagogue that was at antioch pisidia which is what we're looking at this morning in first corinthians 15 paul records how he set before the corinthians what he had also received that christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to those who were then appointed to be witnesses of these things. In Acts 13, verses 32 through 41, Paul points us to some of those very particular scriptures that he had in mind, which Christ fulfilled specifically through his resurrection. And as we look at these scriptures together, we find that they all hinge on Jesus's sonship, specifically his sonship, To David. This is what the crowds shouted together as they ushered Jesus into the city. Hosanna to the Son of David. These are the words that hung above Jesus' head. The offense for which he was put to death. This is the King of the Jews. This is the hope which Jesus fulfilled in his resurrection as the son of David, bringing to pass God's redemptive promise. Now, I don't think that we always attach Jesus' sonship to David, to his resurrection. And that's what makes me excited about this passage. (laughs) Because Paul shows us that that relationship is actually really essential and critical to the message of the gospel. The promise of an offspring who would sit on forever on David's throne was fulfilled by Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. And that really is what I aim to unpack with you this morning as we look at the third and final part of Paul's sermon, which he preached in this synagogue. So let's begin by reading our text. If you will, please stand for the reading of God's word as I read from Acts chapter 13, starting verse 32 and then reading through verse 41. This is the word of the Lord. Paul says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead... No more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up Did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, we've been in this sermon for a couple weeks now, so let's just remember and review Paul and Barnabas, are here at the city of Antioch, Pisidia, and they had come with a purpose to declare the good news of what God had accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ. They came with a purpose of sharing the gospel, to call men and women everywhere to repentance and faith in him. So in our time this morning, I really I want to make three points to you about the gospel that they shared and what that means for us specifically in how it all hinges on Jesus' sonship to David. So I have three three points for you, three points about the gospel. First, I want to see that the gospel is good news. Sounds a little redundant, but you'll see why that's important in a second. The gospel is good news. Second, the gospel is relevant news. The gospel is relevant news. And third, we will see that the gospel is news with consequences. Gospel is news with consequences. Let's begin with what the good news actually is. Mark Twain once said, if you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you read the newspaper, you're misinformed. How true that is. Even with all the access that we have with our news today, it seems like nothing has changed. Sometimes it's hard to know what to believe because it's difficult to know who. believe. Everyone is eager to share their opinions on current events, whether they're qualified to or not. And all the political ads currently running on TV right now serve as a constant reminder that the the way you present facts matters just as much as the facts themselves. When Paul and Barnabas came to Antioch, Pisidia, they came preaching a crucified Christ. That is a scandalous message. We we have grown so accustomed to the cross that we forget how scandalous it really is. It offends human sensibilities. These Jewish listeners, when they they first heard this, they, they would have known the law of Moses. They would have known what it said about anyone who was hanged on a tree. They would know that the law said that such a person was cursed. Living in the Roman Empire, they also knew that the cross was reserved for the very worst of criminals. They knew what, the, what it was to see someone crucified. Not just in theory, not just because they watched the Passion of the Christ. They knew it because they saw it on the road. Humanly speaking, it's difficult to understand how Jesus being crucified could possibly be good news. If anything, the crucifixion of Jesus would seem to disqualify him as being the long-awaited Messiah. But the cross is good news. And as Paul, as Paul has demonstrated for us here in this sermon, it's good news because this was the purpose and the plan of God for his Son, to exalt him as the Savior of his people. It's through the cross that Jesus redeems us from our sin. That's the reason it is good news, because it's there at the cross that the penalty of our sin was paid in full by the Son of God. It's good news because it's through the curse of the cross that the curse of our sin is removed from us. And it's good news because the Son of God did not remain dead, but God raised him up on the third day with the promise that all who believe in him will have eternal life with him. The empty tomb of Jesus replaces the shame of the cross with a weight of eternal glory. So this, as Paul preaches about Jesus in his crucifixion, this is not Paul rearranging facts to try and spread some sort of propaganda. No, rather, Paul anchors his claims in the authority of the Holy Scriptures, showing from God's word, God's word itself that Jesus had to die, that this was God's purpose and plan so that he could also raise him up and exalt him as our Savior. He tells us in his sermon about how Jesus fulfilled everything that was spoken of him, securing the purpose which God had set forward before the world was even made to exalt his Son through his work of saving sinners, such as we are, from sin. When Paul and Barnabas came to Antioch, Pisidia, they came in the authority of Christ, having been sent out by the Holy Spirit to declare this message of salvation. They came to declare news. In verse 32, Paul even says, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Now, Paul's statement here is important because he clearly communicates to the people who were gathered in the synagogue why he and Barnabas had come there in the first place. They had come to declare good news news that god had fulfilled what he had said he would do news that said that showed how god had kept his covenant news that said how god had fulfilled the promise to their fathers through the person and the work of christ they had come to declare the gospel now the word gospel is a word we use all the time especially in the church It's a word that's actually, it's taken from the old English word, which simply means good news. That's why I said it was redundant. That's just a simple translation of the Greek word, which Paul used here, which is euangelion. It's an appropriate word because it declares to us what God has done through Christ for us. The gospel is fundamentally news. Now, unfortunately, there are many professing Christians who have drifted from that definition, and that has produced a lot of confusion. We need to be precise here, because it is, it is just simply all too easy for us to give in to distortions of the gospel if we are not founded on what the gospel actually is. The gospel, Now, this is gonna, might get a little controversial here, The gospel is not your testimony, although that is important. It is not asking Jesus into your heart. It is not a call to make a life change. It is not an altar call. No, the gospel is news. News that holy God, the creator and sustainer of all things, has fulfilled his promise through the person and the work of Christ, who has satisfied God's righteous judgment by dying in our place for sin, who was buried and who was raised in victory from the dead, who reigns victorious even now as King and Lord of all with the promise that all who believe in him will not perish in their sin, but will have eternal life with him and in him. The gospel is news. It's news that is focused on God and his anointed one, which is his Christ. It's not complicated, but it is amazing and it is inexhaustible. I have said many times that a Christian never graduates from the school of the gospel. They only grow deeper into it. The reason Paul and Barnabas were called by God to share this good news News is because it's through the proclamation of this gospel that people who are spiritually dead in sin come alive. Now, last week we spent most of our time looking at the death of Jesus. I don't want to spoil what's going to happen next Sunday, but this focuses specifically on Jesus' life and his resurrection. Last week we saw how the hand of man accomplished what God appointed to take place, the crucifixion of Jesus. We also saw how the arm of God triumphed in raising Jesus from the dead. We saw how this confirmed Jesus' divinity. His resurrection shows that his sacrifice was acceptable. As the only begotten Son of God, Jesus, and Jesus alone is able to satisfy justice. But the resurrection of Jesus does something else. It confirms that Jesus is, in fact, the fulfillment of God's promises. Specifically, the promise God gave to David in his covenant with him. That he would have an offspring who would sit on an eternal throne. Now, you have to understand the importance of this connection paul spends the final third of his sermon proving from the scriptures that jesus is in fact the promised christ by tying Jesus' resurrection to his relationship with his father david in verse 34 paul says and as for the fact notice how he emphasizes that there's no question about whether or not jesus rose from the dead paul just straight up asserts it this happened Jesus died, and even as he died, he was raised. As for the fact that God has raised Jesus from the dead, he says, no more to return to corruption. So Jesus is never going to die again. God has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Now, the two scriptures Paul quotes here are taken from Isaiah 55, verse 3, and Psalm 16, verse 10, which Brad read for us a few minutes ago. This should have a familiar feel to you, not just because Brad read it in our second scripture reading, but because Peter cited Psalm 16 in his sermon, which he preached on the day of Pentecost. In fact, there's a remarkable similarity between the sermon which Paul is preaching here and which Peter preached in his sermon there in Jerusalem, which only really further confirms that they believed and they preached the same gospel. The vital connection between God's promise to David and the news which Paul was preaching here that is is that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, had fulfilled God's promise. It is fitting. That Jesus be called the son of David, not just because he was physically descended from him, but because he is the one who fulfilled God's covenant with David and his covenants given to the fathers, which all hinge on the coming of a promised son. As that offspring, Jesus and Jesus alone is fit to rule as king because, Psalm 110, verse 1, he is both David's son and he is David's Lord. In verse 36, Paul makes sure that we understand that what David wrote about in Psalm 16:10, that God would not let his Holy One see corruption, was fulfilled by Jesus. He says, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, which is another way of saying he died. And he was laid with his fathers, and he saw corruption. David's bones turned to dust. He returned to dust, just as the curse had said. The corruption of David's flesh is verifiable. The return of his body to the dust has happened but not with Christ. Verse 37, But he whom God raised up, that's Jesus, did not see corruption. Far from it. Jesus is now glorified. He has a glorified body, which when you read about Jesus in the rest of the resurrection, it's quite amazing because he's he's doing things only God can do. And yet he has this physical body which still bears the marks of his crucifixion. And it is an amazing mystery, we are told by Paul first corinthians as the son of man is seen in daniel 7 jesus has been presented to his father he has been received in glory he wields dominion as the king of kings and lord of lords and he serves even now for his people as their great high priests Salvation was not through the life of David, but through the life of his son. As David says in Psalm 110 verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the point that Paul means for us to take is that the good news is that God kept his promise through Christ. And it's through Christ that we receive forgiveness of sins and true Freedom. Freedom not to do whatever we would want, but rather freedom to live in the life of Christ according to His law. Freedom to really love and obey God as we were first created to do. The gospel fundamentally is about what God has done through Christ for us. And that brings us to our second point the gospel is relevant. Why does the promise of God to David and the resurrection of Jesus matter for you? Why does it matter? This is is where it is helpful, I think, to distinguish between what the gospel is, it's good news, and what the gospel commands, what our response to it should be. The gospel matters for everyone because it is for everyone. God's people have been called to share this good news of what God has done promiscuously, making known to every people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation the glory and the work of Jesus. We labor in this mission because God uses that proclamation of His message to bring people to faith and obedience the gospel is not the sort of news you hear about and then walk away unaffected it demands a response from you it calls us to repent and believe because it's through faith that we receive the salvation which jesus purchased for his people look with me at verse 38 paul says let it be known to you therefore brothers that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now this, this is a rich statement from Paul. This This is the heart and summary that Paul has been building up to in this whole sermon. There are three parts to what Paul says here. First, he identifies Jesus as the source of forgiveness and freedom, telling us, and then second, he tells us how we can come to share in the benefits of that work. We see Paul identifying God's grace as the power of our salvation, then identifying faith as that instrumental means through which we receive this salvation, And that he identifies Jesus as the object of our faith. The one who has secured that salvation for us. Which is to say, simply, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. You see this very clearly in verse 38. Through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Notice that the forgiveness is not through us, not through our efforts, but through Jesus. And then verse 39, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So two things you need to notice here. First, Jesus sets us free. He sets us free from everything that the law of Moses could not. In Romans 3, Paul tells us that the purpose of the law was to make God's righteousness known to us. But he also makes it very clear that the works of the law cannot justify us, that's a legal term, for making us righteous, innocent before God. Because, Paul says, only the doers of the law can be justified, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is why the law is incapable of making you righteous. That is why you cannot earn your way into God's favor. The law, although it makes the way of life known to us, serves ultimately to condemn us because it shows us how far short we fall of God's holy righteousness. That is why Paul says that, it, that, that we must be freed And that the law of Moses lacks power to do so. We cannot save ourselves through our own works. Everything we do, even if they are objectively good things, is tainted with sin because we have a sinful heart, a sinful nature. We are guilty, and so the law, while it is good, is not able to make us free. Jesus and Jesus alone does that. Notice Paul's words here. By him. By Christ, everyone who believes is freed. The power is Christ. The work is Christ. It's union with Him that makes us free. Jesus does the freeing. So the gospel does not come to you and say, fix your life and then come to Jesus. It says, come to the one who will set you free. As Romans 4 verse 21 says, but now the righteousness of God is has been manifested or made known, revealed apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. So the law and the prophets point us to Jesus. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The second thing you need to notice here in this core aspect of Paul's sermon is that we receive this salvation, this forgiveness through faith in him. The one who believes is set free from sin, not by faith itself, but by the one upon whom the faith rests. This is why I say that the gospel is relevant news. If the gospel were just a message that told us that Jesus died and rose again, but that's it, it wouldn't actually be good news. It's because of Jesus' identity, because of his death, because of his resurrection, because they do something for us, something to be received by faith, that this message is good for us. The Bible tells us that God is holy. He is righteous. He is a perfect judge. He does not wink at sin. That's good, but ultimately, because we're sinners, that's not good news for us. Because it means we're under God's wrath. It means we deserve his judgment. It's because God sent his son and because his son went to the cross to redeem us that there is hope for poor sinners like us. And not just that, there is a perfect promise given that all who believe will not perish but have eternal life with him. That is good news. That's why this needs to go to everyone. There is a, a call, a, a duty, if you will, placed upon men and women everywhere to believe this message, to submit themselves to Christ. And there is a promise that all who do will be saved. Can you imagine having access. Imagine the earth was about to blow up, and you had access to a portal that would take people away from this lethal situation to a place of glory where they could live without fear they could live and nothing would be broken they could live and everything would be the way it was supposed to be would you sit at home and be content to just oh when the time's up I'll go through the portal you would grab every person you could and shove them in there the gospel doesn't work exactly like that That should communicate, I think, the urgency of what this message, the urgency that drove Paul and Barnabas to preach as they did, to take the risks that they did in obedience to Christ. But that should make us also ask an important question. If the salvation comes to all who believe in Jesus, what does it actually mean to believe in him? What, What does that mean? That is a word and a phrase we use constantly as christians believe in jesus what does that mean what does that really mean take a second and think about it. how would you answer that question imagine your neighbor comes to you this afternoon and says i have heard that in order for me to be saved i have to believe in jesus but i don't know what that means what would you say to them i mean that matters if we are meant to receive salvation by believing what does it mean to trust jesus well, the Bible teaches that faith consists of three things. And I think that these three things are apparent in the way that Paul preaches here to these listeners in Acts 13. And I hope that this will help you as you're, as you're trying to express to someone what it, be, what it means, what, not only why they need to trust in Jesus, but what it means to trust in Jesus. That that will just help you be a little clearer in your sharing of the gospel. First, belief consists of hearing the word of God faith consists of hearing the gospel. In verse 38, Paul says, let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Romans ten fourteen asks us, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And then in verse 17, he says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The gospel has to be proclaimed to us. We have to become aware of it before we can believe it. That seems fairly simple, right? The reformers describe this as the noticius of faith. You have, you have to become aware of the work of God before you can believe that work. According to Romans 1, although God's self-revelation in creation is enough to make the reality of God known to us, it is not enough to remove the fallenness of our sinful nature from us. We need to hear the message of what God has done in Christ for us. That is why the church was called, and that is why it was authorized by Jesus to go and speak. So, the first part of belief is really incumbent on us, isn't it? We who know this message need to speak this message to others. The second thing that saving faith consists of is it consists of believing that that message is true. It's not enough just to hear it. And you have to believe that this is a reality. Again, think of Paul's confession, what he first preached to the Corinthians. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared. That's Paul making the truth of the Gospel known to them. And he said, then he goes on to say, so we preach, and so you believed. So they heard it, and they believed it was true. Romans 10 verses 8 through 10 says, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see how it is not just hearing a message, but it is believing that the message is true. The Reformers describe this aspect of faith, a faith that believes that Jesus is in fact Christ, the Son of God, and that he fulfilled God's promise through his death, resurrection, and ascension as a census. We believe it is true, but there is yet a third aspect to saving faith. Saving faith causes us finally to surrender ourselves to Christ rejecting all other hopes and entrusting ourselves to him and in him alone we're told by James that the demons believe that God is and that they even tremble but they do not believe or entrust themselves to the gospel there is no gospel for them there's a difference between believing a gospel is true knowing that it's true and refusing to entrust yourself to it, which is why this third aspect is so important. When Paul is speaking about Abraham's faith in Romans 4, he says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, Paul says, it was counted to him. were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This, this aspect of personal faith, entrusting ourselves to God and his promise is, 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 also, is described by the reformers as fiducia. Faith is, faith is not a work by which we are saved. We are saved by the work of Christ for us. But faith is that thing that joins us to Christ in the promise of God, which is given in the gospel. By faith, we are joined and united to him. Faith, you can think about faith is like a pipe. Carrying the life giving water of Christ to our barren, thirsty souls, bringing forth from them the fruit of love and obedience in our lives. That faith is a gift of God's grace. It is the instrument through which we receive the perfect righteousness of God. And saving faith is set on the work of Christ for us, who the author of Hebrews declares is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And finally, We need to see the news that the gospel is news with consequences. Now, Paul and Barnabas came preaching an encouraging message, didn't they? They came preaching the good news, the euangelion, that God had accomplished all his promises through one man, Jesus Christ. As Paul preached this good news, though, he called on those who heard it to believe in it, to receive this freedom from sin, which cannot be had through our own efforts which is received as a gift of grace on account of Christ's work for us he also came with a warning look at verse 40 beware beware therefore lest what is said in the prophets should come about look you scoffers be astounded and perish God says for I am doing a work in your days a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you not everyone who hears the message of the gospel believes it. In 2 Corinthians two fifteen, Paul described himself and his testimony of the gospel like this. He said, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. To one person, the fragrance of the gospel is beautiful. It is life-giving. To another, that same message is revolting, scandalous. It It is like the light and the heat that come from the sun. That light brings life and fruit to good, silty soil, but it hardens and cracks unprepared clay. Naturally, we would all fall into that second camp. Since the scriptures tell us that the only reason we are able to respond in saving faith to Christ is because God is doing something through his spirit, applying that work to us to give us a heart of faith in the first place. Which means that when we hear this, we ought to fall on our faces before God and say, why me? And to say, all oh, glory goes to you. The mechanics of that, how that works, it's a mystery. I mean, we can, we can, there are certain things I think God has revealed about that. But ultimately, it's in his mind and his understanding. All the same, it is a necessary work. Because let's be clear, the reason that you believe the gospel and your neighbor doesn't isn't because somehow you are smarter than them. It is not because you grew up in a certain kind of home, although God may use that in your life. It is not because you work a certain kind of job. It is because God has shown such grace to you. By grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus Four good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul warned his listeners, do not scoff at this message. Do not walk away. Believe it. Isaiah 49, verse 6, which is what Paul is quoting here, warns the scoffer of what will come to him or her apart from faith. Blindness to the work of God. Blindness to the word of God. And ultimately, death. Peter told the Jewish leaders in Acts 4 verse 12 that he could not obey their command to stop preaching in the name of Jesus because there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name given under heaven among which men must be saved. Jesus himself says in John chapter 10 verse 9 I am the door. If anyone enters by me he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now, we'll get to the response of the people who first heard this sermon next week. I don't have time. But before we do, I just want to want Paul's words to echo in your mind and in your heart. The gospel is good news which lifts our eyes from the, the travesty of our own works to see the grace of God in the face of Jesus, to see the love which he has poured out on us even while we were yet sinners, It calls us not to try and work harder, not to earn our way into glory, not to work to try and earn our way into His family. Because membership in a family isn't earned. It is given. And membership into the family of God is given in love by grace that far exceeds our sins. The gospel has an urgency about it because apart from faith in Christ, we cannot be saved. We need his righteousness. He and he alone is able to save and his work for us is sufficient because he is the eternal son of God and because he is the promised son of David. Now I began with a story from Jesus' life, so let me end with another story from Jesus' life. As Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem, just before he entered on that donkey Cult. We're told he went to the city of Jericho. And as he was leaving the city, he was surrounded by a great crowd. And there was a man named Bartimaeus, who was a blind beggar, who was sitting by the side of the road. And when he found out that the commotion from the crowd was happening because Jesus was passing by, he began to cry out at the top of his lungs, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me over and over he declared this and screamed this and his cries were so loud and so disruptive that many in the crowd rebuked him and told him to shut up but Bartimaeus wouldn't listen to them they weren't the blind man on the road they weren't the man they they weren't the man who knew he needed help And so, as they told him to be quiet, we are told, he screamed even louder, more frantically, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus heard him. And he called Bartimaeus to himself. And he asked him, What do you want from me? And Bartimaeus said, Lord, I want to receive my sight. And then Jesus looked at him and said, Go your way, your faith as made you well and Bartimaeus had his sight restored. Bartimaeus saw Jesus as the son of David and it was his faith in the son of David that led to his restoration and so it is in all who trust in Jesus Christ the son of David and the son of God the same power that healed Bartimaeus' sight is the same power that makes dead souls come to life. It is the work of the son of David, our king, that makes us well. And he calls us to come to him, to believe him, and to live in him. Praise God for his gospel of grace. Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege it is to know how you have worked throughout history up until this point to accomplish all your hand had set forth. All you had purposed in eternity to exalt your Son. Lord, our hearts are are struck with David's words when he says, What is the Son of Man that you should be mindful of Him? Well, just this week I was reading about how little we know of this universe. The universe which you breathed out by the power of your word and exists for your pleasure. And how small we are in this. And yet, that you would have such regard as to give what was most precious to you to save us, to exalt him as our Savior, and to usher us into your household as sons. Father, help us to be humble like Christ. Help us to always remember the amazing work that you have accomplished. And help us to be diligent and bold to preach this message to others this week to share with them the good news of what you have done. We thank you and love you, O God. In Jesus' name, amen.